This is Black Talk, where global black experts mix with local voices from the black community. Personal stories meet historical context, and black achievement is celebrated as we explore the realities of anti-black racism. Our guest today is Yona Knight Wisdom, a Jamaican athlete in the fiercely competitive and technical sport of diving. He began his diving journey in 2004 at the City of Leeds Diving Club, quickly rising through the ranks to achieve a top five finish at the 2014 Commonwealth Games. This success led to the Olympic stage as the first male diver in history to represent Jamaica in the 2016 Games. In 2020, he competed against some of the best divers in the world at the Olympic Games in Tokyo. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Zach Pender, with our guest Olympic athlete, Yona Knight Wisdom. Hey, Yona, thanks so much for being with us today. Hello, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to the chat. Yes, so Yona, um, full disclosure here. <laughs> Yona is my nephew, so occasionally if he refers to me as Uncle Andy, then you know why. But Yona, you were born in Leeds uh, to a Barbadian mother, to my sister Grace, and to a Jamaican father, Trevor. And I remember you as a little kid being very athletic very, and fearless. You were unafraid of heights, and you were actually quite a good swimmer and an excellent gymnast. And I know you love football and, and uh, cricket as well, but why did you choose diving? And tell us what led you to the sport. And why did you choose to dive for Jamaica, where you never lived, and not for the UK, where you were born? Well, diving came to me. Diving almost found me, and I almost had the perfect tools to give me a good start in diving. So you mentioned the swimming, you mentioned the gymnastics. My mum would take me swimming from a young age just to make sure that I could do it because it's an important life skill. And I fell into gymnastics through my best friend. Uh, I just happened to join him at his gymnastics session one time and I was really good at it. So they recommended me to join a gymnastics club. Then at school, it was just a normal day and you know we got told that we were going off to the sports hall to do some session with a diving club and I had no idea what it meant and I went off and did it and had a great time and turned out I was really good at all the skills that they tried to teach and this was a talent identification program where they were going to schools around Leeds seeking out young athletes that had potential to be a good diver you know I did all these tests was good at all of them because of gymnastics went to the pool I could swim and then they gave us some free time at the end where we could just go and have a bit of fun. And I was like super, super fearless, just like doing loads of dives and just having a great time. And from that moment, obviously, I then discovered the sport and I realized I enjoyed the sport and I liked it. And I was quite good at it for, for starters. Then later on that summer uh, in 2004, it was the Olympic Games in Tokyo, uh, in Athens, sorry. And I watched two British divers by the name of Leon Taylor and Peter Waterfield compete there and win a silver medal for Great Britain. And I saw everything going on there, you know, the medals, the flowers, the celebration, the emotions, and I wanted to be a part of that. And that point, I decided that I wanted to become an Olympian. So I was kind of like locked into this sport that I wanted to be successful in. 
without really knowing what the journey would look like. And there's no way that I could have known. But the reason why I stuck with diving more than the other sports was just simply because I enjoyed it more. You know, football was fun. Cricket was fun. And yeah, I I was maybe better at diving than all the other sports as well. But I just had more fun with my friends in the diving pool than I did out on the rugby field, getting muddy or on the football field, you know, chasing people around or even on the cricket pitch, having balls thrown at me uh, very quickly. I didn't, I didn't enjoy that, but it was, it was definitely the enjoyment factor, which made me stick at it. And of course I had like visions of, you know, athletes at high levels in other sports, you know, I watched football matches, you know, professional, but I, I didn't look at any of those like I looked at the Athens Olympics and think I could be there or I want to be there as much as I did for diving. It's it's cool to hear about that. You know, you just had more fun doing that as opposed to, you know, some of these other sports. But uh, speaking of the Olympics, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. Um, I also read about that story in a Jamaica Gleaner article when you were watching the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens and you witnessed Leon Taylor and Peter Waterfield win that silver medal for Great Britain. And I believe it was the 10 meter platform synchro event. And uh, 12 years later in 2016, here you managed to qualify for your first Olympic Games in Rio uh, in what I'm sure was a really, you know, full circle moment for you. I just want to know what was it like, you know, making history, representing Jamaica at the highest level and just, you know, being there at the Olympics as an Olympian. Being at the Olympics itself was unbelievable because I'm such a huge sports fan. I was walking around the village just keeping my eyes peeled for athletes that I knew and followed and watched over the years. And I saw so many. And every time it was a case of just trying to control my emotion, not get too excited because, you know, at the end of the day, they're just humans. They don't want people running up on them and, and asking them for pictures all the time. There was a few where you kind of just have to have to see them and, and get a picture like Michael Phelps. I saw in the village and had to get a picture with him. Um, but, you know, it became real when I... I landed in Rio and I was getting the bus from the airport to the village and sat just a few rows down me on the bus was Alison Felix. And I sat there, I was like, that, that's Alison Felix. Like, like she is unbelievable. Like, and I've watched track and field events so many times and watched her compete. And that, that's where it became really real for me. When I, when I saw her, I was like, wow, I'm like, I'm not on the same level as some of these athletes, but I'm in the same environment. I'm in the same area. Like I've done something incredible here. That was really eye-opening, but the qualification itself, you know, that was a crazy moment because there was so much on riding on that day and the pressure wasn't external. The pressure was more internal. The pressure was due to my expectations and my wants and desires. And I knew that that one day was my chance to make it happen, which is tough to approach something with such a hard deadline. Like I couldn't change the day of the event. I couldn't change the outcome if it didn't go my way like if it didn't go my way then that was it so that was a serious level of pressure which I, I wasn't sure whether I was able to deal with that I approached it not even thinking about what would happen had it gone the other way like in my head the only thing that was happening was I was qualified for the Olympics that was the only thing that was happening that was the only outcome and you know after my last dive I, I didn't look at I wasn't looking at my scores but I knew I was diving reasonably well I, I could tell from my coach that I was in a good position. Um, so I was just getting feedback from him. But after my last dive, going through the water, swimming to the poolside, sitting up and looking at the scoreboard and 
first of all, before my scores popped up, seeing my name. And I think I was in like 17th place or 16th place before my last dive. And knowing that I'd done a good, good enough dive to maintain my position in the top 18, which is what I needed. You know, it was the biggest release of pressure. It was such a relief. It was such a great feeling. And then not only that, but getting out of the water and having like two of my best friends that I trained alongside with for the, for the whole four-year cycle, seeing them there and for them to congratulate me immediately. And another friend of mine that I'd also qualified in 18th place. And then my coach who had taken me on this journey, like having all those people so close to me immediately afterwards, you know, it was, it was too much emotion for me to manage. And I don't normally cry. I'm not a cry. I'm definitely not a crier, but I couldn't hold it anything in at that point. You know, everything just came flooding out and, you know, it was four years of hard work that came flooding out, but it was also like, remembering my nine-year-old self and remembering his dream and thinking how proud he would be of me in that moment that's that's what came out at that point and I don't think it's a feeling that will be matched by anything else ever even you know I qualified for my second games last year and the, the feeling was different the feeling wasn't the same it was still great don't get me wrong but it was nowhere near that feeling of the first time Wow, that's incredible. Powerful story there. And I wanted to ask you about those second games because you managed to, you know, as, as, as large of an achievement as this is, you managed to do it again at the Olympic Games that come right after the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo. And uh, this time you're a returning Olympian with more experience under your belt, as you mentioned, didn't feel, you know, the same. It felt different. I, I don't think you'd say it felt lesser, but it felt different. And I think it's probably because, you know, you had some experience under your belt. You've been there. You you know kind of what to expect. And so I was wondering, when it comes to competing at the Olympics, did you feel more comfortable this time around as compared to the first time? And, you know, does it ever, I'm, I'm, I have no idea, but does it ever get any easier, perhaps? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's the short answer to that question. It never, <laughs> it never, ever, ever gets any easier. No matter what the competition is, I still get on that board. And I still feel the exact same way of I don't want to mess this up <laughs> and I don't want to embarrass myself in front of all these people or in front of my friends. Uh, that's genuinely the majority of my thought when I'm competing, apart from all the other stuff that I actually need to think about. But <laughs> the, the, the kind of sad thing with it is, you know, I'd achieved my dreams at the age of 21. I literally, it, it was literally my life dream that I wanted to make the Olympics. Like, I had no other dream that I wanted from my life. Um, at that point and I achieved it at the age of 21 so I went into a, a bit of a weird period of almost like in limbo trying to figure out what my next steps were because I'd also graduated from uni in that year as well in 2016 so I'd completed two pretty big tasks in my life at that age and it then became a question of like what next like obviously I want to continue diving obviously I want to make it to the next games but you know it didn't feel as worthy a goal as the whole first Olympics was so you know the reason why it felt different in, in Tokyo, not to mention the pandemic and everything that went on with that, because that was just a whole level of stress that no one was ready for. But the reason why it felt different is because it felt like I had a different level of pressure on myself and I was doing it for a different reason. Yes, I was more experienced and I already had the experience of it under my belt. And also, yes, the Olympics didn't feel the same this time round because of the circumstances and because of the restrictions like you know it felt like we were just pushed off to one side like we were there but we weren't really there you know we were in Tokyo but we weren't really in Tokyo like they they didn't want us to be a part of the community we were just 
we were just there and once we were done like we had to go and get out as quickly as possible so yeah it was always going to feel different because of that but you know I was doing different dives I had different expectations of myself I had a different level of performance expectation that I wanted and my main goal was to improve on what I did in Rio in 2016 so that was my real target so I didn't feel emotional after qualifying, yes, I was happy, but I didn't feel emotional because my job wasn't done at that point. My job was to go to the Olympics and try and do a better performance. So the time where I became emotional was after the semi-final, where I hadn't competed well, I'd missed out on the final, pretty much the exact same circumstance as Rio. And then I was really upset. And then I was really emotional because, not because the four years or five years of hard work at that time had been wasted. It's just like, what else can I do to get myself out of that situation? It was just frustration at that point. But I still had a great experience and I still enjoyed my time there. And I also feel like I managed myself in that period really, really well to make it after Rio because I think one of the hardest things as an Olympian is actually doing it again. There's so many examples of Olympians who just go to one games. There actually aren't that many that go to multiple. So for me to get to -to back-to-back games was when I think about it and when I reflect on it, a huge achievement because that four-year period, there's so much fluctuation in that time. There's so many changes that happen. You know, I moved from Leeds to Edinburgh. I dived with a different coach because my coaches that looked after me from my from my whole career moved on. So there were so many changes and so many different things that could have affected me. And, you know, had I not made it, there's so many different things I could have put the, put the blame on. But when I actually reflect on it, it's testament to me and testament to my level of ability and also my my level of focus and desire to to make it after all the changes that happened again not to mention the pandemic because that messed everyone up i was gonna i was gonna say the pandemic i mean yeah i could still remember seeing some pictures of you uh practicing um uh handstands in your in a washroom <laughs> you can go to the pool right and so I, I think that was one of the difficult times too I mean just think about what the impact of the pandemic had on on athletes I mean that's uh, you, you got to give yourself more credit I think for that so I was watching uh, that documentary series on the anatomy of a diver um, where they characterize you as being among the top 10 percent top 10 percent at least in the world and um anything has a lot to do with the right mix of physiology and psychology to be an elite athlete uh, probably in any sport but let's face it you are probably the tallest diver in the international diving circuit right now does this pose a problem for you being a tall diver because most divers tend to be a lot a little bit shorter than you are uh what are some of the challenges you faced when you started to outgrow the other divers? Yeah, definitely an anomaly when it comes to diving. I definitely don't fit into the group. And that's a level of uniqueness that I've been able to take advantage of, fortunately, because growing up, I had really good coaches and high-level coaches who had been through it all from a diving perspective, but also a coaching perspective. So they were able to give me really good advice growing up. And I was taught the ideal technique. Of course, it was a challenge as I started to grow really rapidly because my body changed a lot. And with diving being such a proprioceptive sport where you're feeling yourself and the synergy between your mind and your body is so important, when it changes rapidly, everything feels slightly different. You know, whilst I was spinning in the air, 
my shapes became a little bit bigger because my limbs were a little bit longer, which meant I span a little bit slower. So where I needed to release from my shape and come out of my dive in order to get a good entry into the water, it changed. So I had to adjust and, and learn to understand that. So my development, particularly during those years of growth, ended up being a lot slower than it was for some of my peers and some of the people that I, I trained and competed with because, you know, they were all quite short and but most importantly, their bodies didn't change that much. So they were more consistent than I was at that age. So it was frustrating because of that, but also I dealt with some knee injuries during that time as well. I had Oscar Schlatter's disease, which was due to just overstretching of my, my quad muscle uh, and constant jumping, constant impact caused a lot of pain in my uh, patella tendon. So I had to manage my training around that, you know, getting out early, icing my knees, which was really frustrating because all I wanted to do was train with my friends and, and be in there. But I had to sit on poolside and watch them have fun. I had to sit at home and watch them travel and compete and represent Great Britain when they started going internationally. So that was a really tough period because I then considered my future in the sport. I considered whether it was a sport for me. You know, I was definitely more suited to something like swimming or something like basketball or something like even football, really, with my size. Uh, the sport didn't suit me, but I couldn't leave it. I couldn't step away. It was almost like I had a mission that I was on and I had to finish. The watching my friends go away and... The jealousy that came with that, it wasn't negative. It turned into a positive because I used it as fuel to want to continue working hard and want to figure it out and want to improve and want to achieve my dream. And then Jamaica came into the mix um, through my coach. You know, he suggested either representing Barbados or Jamaica. And that, that felt like I was choosing between my two families, which <laughs> wasn't ideal. But, you know, I leant towards the side of Jamaica uh, for various reasons and that really opened the doors for me that gave me the opportunity to to go and compete internationally and get the experience and actually slowly progress towards potentially making it to the olympics one day yeah yeah that was a that was a tough one for us to, sw to swallow from barbados <laughs> <laughs> yeah either way it was a tough decision it wasn't an ideal decision but uh yeah it, I, I to be fair one of the reasons for the decision is because I felt like I knew Barbados, Barbados so well because I'd been there so many times. I felt so comfortable there. And choosing Jamaica was almost like a, a journey of exploration and doing something new and doing something different. And that actually, that felt good to me and that felt exciting as well. So that was part of the reason. Um, but definitely the, the sporting structure in Jamaica is definitely a little bit stronger than Barbados due to their prowess in track and field. So that was, they were the main reasons for my decision. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't have Usain Bolt either. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not, not many places do, not many places do, but yeah, he was a bit, I can't lie. He was a bit of a draw. I think that's really uh, insightful. Thanks for sharing that story. Um, especially how you, you know, you face those barriers being tall, you know, sticking out a little bit from, from your peers and then even going through injury. But uh, continuing to persevere and stick with the sport, I think that's very admirable. So um, it almost seems as if it requires, you know, large amounts of strength and flexibility, especially at the highest levels. And so I was just wondering, you know, what does a diver's training regimen look like? You talked about, you know, swimming, gymnastics, all coming together to kind of make an ideal diver. I was wondering what type of exercises allow you to achieve the strength and flexibility 
And um, how do you go about doing that? I think my uncle mentioned it at the start. Diving's very, very technical. And that's one of the worst things about our sport because it requires strength and flexibility and control in pretty much every single area of your body. I think that's probably one of the reasons why it's not as well-known a sport as football or some of those sports because as a football player, if you can kick the ball hard enough and accurately enough, then you're good. And it's it's all based on your control of the ball, your foot-to-eye coordination, and the other elements can be developed along the way. So you see a lot of football players make it to a high level and then realise that they actually need to work on their strength in order to become better. And that's what they do. Whereas with diving, the barrier to entry is so much higher. You need strength and power and understanding of your body in so many different areas. So the training is really intense. We train every single day. Missing a day of training feels almost like you then start again when you come back into it um, until you get to like my age and my level of experience where I can pick back up quite quickly. But the strength and the the training that we do has to be developed over such a long period of time before you have any chance of making it to a high level. And the the level that the best divers are at internationally is so high that for you to be in the mix, you have to you have to meet that level. There's no way around it. There's no fluke in it. There's no doing something by accident. It takes hours and years of constant, consistent training in every area of the body. So our sessions include a lot of gymnastics, a lot of uh, acrobatic kind of skills, which help to mirror the dives that we do in the pool. We actually spend maybe more time doing dry land work in a gym rather than the pool until we get to like, closer to competitions. Uh, there's a lot of conditioning, core conditioning, upper body conditioning, uh, a lot of flexibility work because that's very important uh, and a lot of weights training as well to build the strength and power that you need in order to jump high enough and move with with the right level of force. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very annoying because it requires so much in so many different areas. That's really insightful. And that's uh, perhaps this is a little bit of an unconventional question, but um, you know, as for any athlete, diet is a huge factor especially in the success of a high level athlete. And sometimes it's tough, you know, to stick to some of these, some of these diets. Some people are a little bit easier on themselves. Some people are a little bit harder on themselves. I just wanted to ask you about you and your personal diet. Where do you lie on that spectrum? Do you stick to a really strict diet and are you watching all of your calories or, or do you give yourself a little bit more leeway? What works well for you and what does your diet look like? My diet is something that's progressed and evolved over the last few years in particular. I've always been quite fortunate that I've not put on weight quickly. Uh, I've always been able to hold off weight and I've always been quite lean. So in terms of having to eat to control that, I've not had to do it in my career, which has been, I don't know if that's just pure luck or if it's actually me being reasonably conscious about it. Fortunately, also being from a, a Caribbean home, I always eat well. You know, whatever my mum or my dad cooked, it was good food. It was never bad food. Uh, I mean, there was occasional times when my dad would take me to McDonald's, but, you know, what kid doesn't do that? But, you know, definitely since I've kind of grown a little bit older and moved away from home and had to learn how to cook, I've now been on a journey in terms of trying to learn how to cook the right things, how to cook well, how to make it taste good, because nice tasting food is important to me. And only in the last kind of six months or so have I approached a nutritionist for some advice 
And with that, I filled in a food diary and got some feedback based on the things I was eating, what I could add in to make it better and what I could take away to make it better. And I made some minor changes. So at the moment, I'm not super obsessed with calories or macronutrients and things like that. But I definitely take care to make sure I'm including the right things in my diet, eating enough. One of my issues was like under eating because I, being so tall and being already so heavy, I didn't want to eat too much and be too heavy to dive essentially. So I would often not eat enough and then feel hungry or not feel full of energy. So uh, one of the good pieces of advice that he's given to me is is how to not overeat, but not undereat, but also make sure I'm eating enough of the right thing and make sure I'm carrying enough energy into my training sessions, which helps me train better. So yeah, now I've definitely made some really positive changes. And the, the most important thing is I, I like everything that I eat. I'm not one of those athletes that's just eating horrible food that doesn't take nice or drinking horrible protein shakes just to, just to get it in. Like I'm eating good food that's good for me, but it also tastes good. And that's, that's of high importance. Now, I think you were tested at the Liverpool John Moores University. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one of the world's leading centers for human performance. And the folks there were amazed when they analyzed your anatomy. And they said that uh, you were a very unusual diver in a lot of respects, not only because of your height, but also because of your unique uh, acrobatic agility, because of your endurance level and your jumping ability. And also because of your ability to optimize your height, I think, while controlling the, the, you know, your tall body in free space. So how are you able to coordinate all these different aspects uh, to produce the perfect dive from a springboard? And what are some of the challenges in getting the perfect dive? Um, if you can walk us through a typical dive, uh, say, at the Olympics uh, on a three-meter diving board, how would you sort of explain that to our listeners? So the truth is, I don't really know how I can do it as well as I can do it, especially being this tall. It doesn't make any sense. Everywhere that I go, every coach or other athlete that I meet, you know, they look at me dive and they're like, most of the things that I do shouldn't be possible. And I've not been able to figure out how or why it is. I mean, there's no scientific reason. All I can say is that I was just coached well from a young age. I was coached good technique and I guess I've been smart enough and receptive enough to take all the information I was getting and apply it in almost the right way in the best way possible for me so that's the only reason why but that day was really interesting at the at the university in Liverpool it was really interesting it was really eye-opening and the main one for me was the endurance side I've always said my endurance is really bad and I hate running I hate doing long distance but they were really impressed with my levels of endurance saying that it was um, almost similar to like a, a semi-professional football player which was you know I, I didn't think I was anywhere near that but that's important because it means that I can train hard and I can do more dives than maybe other people can do at higher levels of energy. So with that, I get more useful reps in every single day than maybe some people that get tired towards the end of their session. And they might be doing the reps, but they might not be so useful. They might not be gaining as much information from each one because they might be more tired. The jumping and the other sides of the testing that we did didn't surprise me too much but it was really interesting to see what I'd love to do is is kind of be able to 
go back now and, and do all the same tests again and see what the difference is in the scores and see if there's been improvement over the last few years based on like the training that I've done and based on the changes that I've made. That would be really interesting, but uh, I'm not sure if that would be possible. But for for a dive, to be able to put it all together, it's relying on autonomy and relying on the training that we've done. So when it comes to a competition, say the Olympics, there's maybe one or two key things that I'm thinking about before I you know, start the action of my dive. I'm thinking about maybe one element of the takeoff and I'm thinking about, you know, what I maybe want to feel in the air in terms of where I come out or I'm even only thinking about the hurdle, the approach to the end of the board or my body position. You know, for each for each dive, I'm picking out maybe one or two very key elements that I focus on. And if I get those elements right, they will contribute to the success of the dive. And after that, I'm almost just hoping that my body takes care of itself and just knows what it needs to do because of the number of them that I've done over and over and over and over again in training to the point where, you know, in some of my dives, I, I actually sometimes accidentally close my eyes, which isn't ideal because even though we're spinning quite quickly, you can see colors, you see, you get a vision of the space that you're in and that helps you to understand where you are in the air. Whereas if you, your eyes are closed, then it's just complete darkness and you have no idea. But sometimes when I accidentally close my eyes, my vision is, my body just takes control and does exactly the right thing. So it's a case of, trust, of trusting in the autonomy and focusing on a few minor, a few key details that are going to contribute to the success of the dive and just hoping for the best, really, uh, relying, on, relying on the training that I've done. I know that you still have a lot of diving left. Uh, we've seen your performances at two Olympics. Um, we've seen you perform in the Commonwealth Games, Pan American Games, the World's Competitions. And uh, I know once we saw you in, in Calgary, uh, we were together in Calgary um, as you were competing as an external person coming in. Uh, so we know that there's, there's a lot more left for you in the sport. But what are your plans for the future after competitive diving? And what are the challenges that I think young black divers in the Caribbean and in Jamaica in particular have to overcome to reach the elite level uh, diver that you are? Well, first of all, so I'll address this in, in order of I'm hopefully coming back to Calgary this year. So I'll let you know the dates and hopefully I'll be there and then maybe you can come down again. So that'd be nice. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> uh, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll be in June. So I'll, I'll let you know. Um, okay, I'll be there. The second thing I'll address, I'll address the the, the challenges of, of the Caribbean divers, and then I'll address my future. So, obviously, in the Caribbean at the moment, there's literally zero provision for diving. That's that's the barrier. That's pretty simple. There's no provision. So, how can that be changed? What what can be done differently to allow that? Yeah, Trinidad have built a, an incredible facility, but there's no diving program. Uh, that's because there's no expertise. So. You know, that's that's an area where I feel now a responsibility to become involved in and, and, and try and do something to help that. Because I genuinely believe that Jamaican people, Caribbean people from all the islands have sufficient levels of athletic ability and sufficient levels of talent to become successful divers. Just the right provision needs to be available and it needs to be accessible for as many people as possible in order to find and discover the talented athletes in the way that I was discovered when I was nine years old. So that's that's the challenge. How how I'm gonna go about that, 
still trying to figure it out. Um, it's going to require a lot of support and a lot of funding. So I need to, I need to figure that out. But I think that the, the, at the moment, the best way that I can assist in that is to continue diving and continue putting my own name on the map to show people and be a, be a almost source of inspiration for, for people to look at, because we all know that having a role model that looks more similar to you means you're more likely to actually follow in their footsteps. Um, I believe that to be very true. So that's the best area. And, and, you know, the more successful that I am in, in the sport of diving, the more knowledge I gain about the sport of diving, the more understanding I get of what it takes to build a diving program and build a, a successful diver, uh, which is what I'm getting through my coaching now that I do day in, day out, uh, alongside my own training. So that is all going to hopefully contribute to me being able to convince people to invest in the sport of diving in the Caribbean and then actually making it a reality. So that's the barrier. And it's it's basically as simple as that. There's not really much else to it. So that's where my potential future ties in outside of diving. I've always had to think about different ways to make money being a Jamaican diver because I don't get the funding that my British friends get uh, for being at this level. And actually being able to see what they get and to see what I need in order to make it to a high level has helped me approach it in the way of finding more and more and more to help me get to the level that I want to be at, which is their level, essentially. Had I been away from that, I might not have known the level that is required uh, and known what kind of investment and what kind of funds are required. I've been forced to do it in different ways. So, you know, me even going to university was very different to what most of the British divers have done uh, throughout their careers. And now... I'm looking at different ways that I can try and sustain myself to a higher level whilst I'm still able to be a competitive diver. So I'm just finishing up a course in coaching and mentoring. So hopefully once I get that qualification, I can start to provide coaching and mentoring to companies, corporates, teams, to athletes who are in a similar situation to me and they're trying to consider them their next steps and I can help hopefully coach them through that, through my own experiences and also mentoring younger athletes as well to help them develop and progress. You know, one of the things that would have been so valuable for me as I was younger is someone to talk to and someone to just go through the issues that I have or the questions that I need to know the answer to for what it takes to be an elite athlete. And had I realised some of the things quicker, I might have been able to make those adjustments in my life quicker and been a better athlete earlier. Um, I, I'm, I'm happy with the process that I've gone through and the lessons that I've learned have been so valuable, but I might have been able to learn them quicker and I might be able to help provide that to other athletes. So that's going to be a source of hopefully making some money alongside training to allow me to continue diving for as long as I can, but also doing something really valuable and helping me to grow as a person. And then on the side of that, the goal is to try and set up some kind of diving framework in Jamaica. So the, the method I'm going to go with is trying to not necessarily be the person on poolside coaching day in, day out, because I don't think that's the job for me. I don't think that's where I'm going to give the best version of myself. Um, what I would really love to do is to teach people over there about diving, get people involved and get people interested in the sport. That's going to help run the program, bring an external coach in that can provide a bit more expertise in terms of developing the program. And then having the people that come through the, the training program in Jamaica, having them help the program and help the coach to build a proper center. And with that is a facility requirement so it's going to be a case of trying to find someone to invest in the 
building of a facility, uh, which I know is no mean feat, but you know I don't see any reason why not because the reasons are bigger than just diving for a facility like that. You know, it's going to be a it would be a full service aquatic facility, so it's not just about diving. Diving is just a central part of it, but there's so many opportunities in terms of swimming clubs, swimming lessons, building the fitness of local people in Jamaica through different means rather than just running. Uh, giving opportunities to young kids to get them off the streets or allow them to find a level of ability that they might not have been able to find before. But also other things, even like tourist attractions and, you know, doing dive shows for for the tourists because I know Jamaica and other islands in the Caribbean are tourist hotspots. So there's so many different ways that it could be really successful. So I need to basically figure it out and find the right person to approach and uh, find the help that I need. But these are all plans in my head. So... Whether it actually works out or not, that's the next question. But if all else fails, then I can just be a diving coach and I'll be cool with that because I quite enjoy it. Well, you know you know what? Um, you're already being uh, sort of an example and a, and a good mentor to some divers. I remember in, in Scotland, there was a Canadian black diver that you actually did synchro diving with. And you hadn't done synchro for a while, but he, he was about, um, looks almost like your height. And what I saw in the pictures and... Uh, and he did quite well, apparently. So you can talk a little bit about him and how he got involved as a result of you watching you good dive. He got involved in diving himself. Yeah, this this is the most like unbelievable situation, basically, because um, and and it shows that the power of me competing internationally and me putting Jamaica on the map as a as a diving nation. Because he saw me on Instagram and he dives with people that competed with me internationally as well. And they knew that he had a bit of Jamaican heritage through his father, just like me. So, you know, they told him to look at me and he looked at me and then sent me a message and sent me some videos of his dives and literally just sent a message saying synchro question mark. And I watched the video and we spoke a little bit. He sent me some more videos and we spoke a little bit more. And he said, oh, he's actually interested in representing Jamaica and asking me for advice and what the process was like and how to get the passport and everything. And I, I, you know, I, I fed the advice. I watched the videos. I watched him improve. And all the time, I was thinking, you know what? Like this guy's actually all right. Like it might be tough, but synchro could potentially be an option. So I'll keep, I'll keep my mind open to it. But I wanted to make sure I got through Tokyo first and and did that right. So once I got through Tokyo, I got in touch with him. I was like, you know what? Let's see what we can do. Um, we organized for him to come over to Edinburgh. Because he's at Northwestern University in Chicago, so and, and he's a senior, so he's literally just finished school. He's about to graduate this summer. So we organized the trip, and it just so happens that the week that he could come was the week of Scottish Nationals, so he, we were able to compete. And he arrived, and we literally trained for three days together. That was it. We trained for three days, and it was unbelievable. Like He's literally the, maybe slightly shorter than me, but he can jump just as high as me. He spins really quickly. He's a good diver, technically. There's just like a lot of things that he can work on to improve and, and become even better. But in three days, we matched up so easily. It was just such a shock. So, you know, never did I think I would find someone that would want to represent Jamaica at the same time that I was still diving. On top of that, never did I think that that person would be of a similar level to me at the time that we could potentially do synchro. Not only they would be at a similar level, but the body shape and the, the weight was similar. And then on top of that, the guy's called Johan and I'm called Yona. And it's just so close. It's 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 just outrageous. Like the, the coincidence is just ridiculous. Are you guys in the medal, right? You got you got a medal in synchro? Yeah, so we, we finished second. There was only four pairs in it, and we were like 
there was like two senior pairs. So the medal in itself wasn't that much of a surprise because of the circumstance of the competition. However, the score and the performance was what was surprising because, as I say, we only had three days and, and the pair that beat us, um, the Scottish pair, who are going to the Commonwealth Games later this year, they've been training together for a number of years. They've been doing synchro together for this whole season and a little bit longer with a view to the Commonwealth Games. So, you know, they put us in some serious work and we came in with three days of training and gave them a run for their money and then he finished 10 points behind them. Like, that's unbelievable. So it definitely opened our eyes to the possibilities of more. So, um, you know, he studies neuroscience. Well, he studied neuroscience, so he's just graduating, but he plans to apply for med school. If he gets into med school, he wants to defer for a year and move to Edinburgh and train with me for at least a year. Uh, if he doesn't get in, which uh, I think it's likely that he won't get in because, I mean, he's very smart, but I know that it's very difficult to get into med school the first time of asking. So if he doesn't get in, I think he wants to take a couple of gap years and, and come to Edinburgh for two years and see if we could try and qualify for the Olympics, which would be outrageous. Very, very, very challenging, you know, but why not? Um, and, and for him, you know, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to come and live in a different country and train and compete at the highest level. And it's an opportunity he's never going to get again. So he might as well. So, you know, it's, it's something else that's exciting for me. Because I've always been on my own. I've always competed individually. I've always done my own thing. So to have someone else alongside me and the potential of doing synchro, another event, that's just really exciting. So he, he unfortunately won't be able to do the Commonwealth Games this year because of registration and timings. But, you know, he would potentially come to the Grand Prix in Calgary. And he's from Calgary, so it would be home, his home Grand Prix. And, uh, you know, we've, we've hopefully got Worlds and then we'll see what happens next year. Great, great. Now, listen, just being in this sport, um, I think, brought you in contact with a number of famous people. Some in sport, of course, of diving and, and athletics in general. Uh, some in politics, some people in business, some in royal circles, etc. Can you tell us about some of the celebrities you've met along the way and, and who was most influential um, as far as you're concerned, in your opinion, uh, and why? Yeah, I've met. It's funny thinking about. It. I've, I've met a number of, I guess, celebrities and and people in the public eye. Uh, I performed in front of the Queen, which is pretty cool. I've met, you know, Princess Anne. I've met a couple of prime ministers. I've met some actors and obviously a lot of sporting superstars. You know, not all of them have I been able to have in depth conversations with. Some of them have been like passing meetings. I guess, I, I think the easy answer is to say that the most influential one out of all of them was probably Usain Bolt because he was one of the main reasons that I chose to represent Jamaica. The idea of being on the same team as him at the Olympics was really cool. And then at the Olympics and also multiple times previously, being able to like speak to him and for him to kind of appreciate what I've done, that's been really cool. You know, it just makes me like really happy to to think that. So yeah, it's... It's funny, as, as you were listing the different um, groups of people, it made me like remember about some of the people that I'd met that I'd completely forgotten about. You know, a lot, a lot of these people that are famous or celebrities, most of them have worked extremely hard to get into their walks of life and get to the level that they're at. But I, I think often it's hard to speak to them on a level where you actually get something really influential because not all of them are that open and not all of them are are actually that willing to share that much information like in terms of really what it's what it's all about so you know it's cool to meet these people but I, i've kind of got more inspiration from 
people out of the public eye and people that haven't actually succeeded and you know when they speak about their mistakes and what they might have done wrong and what they could have done better like I've learned more from those kind of people because then I can essentially try and avoid the mistakes that they made so I think it's important to consider the 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 I guess less successful people than the successful people all the time because I think you can often learn more from them yeah, that's that's really cool. And you know, first off, I want to say the story with Johan is like amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it it speaks towards the fact that Instagram is becoming one of the the leading networking tools of our generation. And you know, I think that's really really cool. And then also just to speak about Usain Bolt, that's also really cool because I think that we all watched him, you know, around the world yeah. during his Olympic Games, especially. I think uh, Beijing, you know, in 2008, where he started setting some some pretty impressive records. Yeah, you know, so so the opportunity for you to to meet him and train with him that's really cool, and you should always you know hold on to that and appreciate that. I know you will. Um, but there's just one more for me. So it's likely that we will have many current and or aspiring student athletes listen to this episode when it comes out. You know, you're going to be a huge draw, and so I was wondering, what would your advice be to them? and achieving their dreams in athletics. You know, you've seen it all, as I've heard through this interview, the ups, you know, qualifying for the Olympics, going out there, competing on the world stage, you know, world televised events, and then also the downs of, you know, getting getting injured, you know, questioning whether or not you wanted to continue in the sport. And you've come through it all, and you're at this point now. So what kind of, what what little pearls of advice would you give to them to, to, to achieve their goals in athletics in general? All right, so... For this, I'm going to give my performance principles that I've, I I spent some time thinking about because I did a talk uh, a few months ago and within this talk, I was trying to think about the attributes that it took for me to become successful and the things that I had to consider to become successful and and to reach high level in my sport. And most of these things have been developed over time and they're definitely not quick fixes. Um, But hopefully soon when I launch my website, they're going to be available on on my website to read through. Um, but I've got eight and these eight are the first one is ambition. So I think that in order to find any kind of genuine success, you have to be ambitious. You have to take a risk. You have to, you have to think outside the box and push yourself because, you know, the safe option, yeah, it might be achievable, but then it's easy. and You don't really feel that great about it. But whereas if you're ambitious and aim really far, really high, and if you don't quite make it, then you probably get to a really high level. So that's why I believe in ambitious and you can achieve a lot more than you think you can uh, by being ambitious. Um, The second one is psychology. So I think psychology is something that is underrated still in sport and in business and in life. And it's something that I have probably underrated myself actually, but I've, I've always understood it well enough to the point where I don't feel like I need that much psychological help. I just have to go through my own process. So I learned it when I was at uni. I learned some psychological methods to help me cope with competition and things like that. But having the right mindset and a clear mind as well allows for better performance because you can manage stress better. And that's the most important thing is is stress management, I think, under pressure, um, which comes in sport and it comes in business. The third one is enjoyment, which is a non-negotiable you have to enjoy what you do it's as simple as that if you're not enjoying something then there's no point in doing it and the only reason why I've been diving for 17 years is because I genuinely love it and there's nothing that I enjoy more I know it's often the hard thing to do if you're in something that is actually good for you or whatever 
that you don't enjoy, but it might pay you enough money or you're under pressure from external sources to do it, but you won't get the same level of fulfillment out of it if you don't enjoy it. And, and the more you enjoy it, the easier it is to continue improving. The fourth one is physiology. So that comes natural with the sport of diving. Like you have to be in good physical uh, shape to do it well. But in other things, having good levels of exercise alongside whatever it is you do helps to boost your cognitive function and also increases your energy level. So you can do everything a little bit better, a little bit longer. So if you're an athlete, your physicality has to be at a higher level than most people in order to do your sport well. The fourth one is dedication. So that comes in enjoyment. If you enjoy something, it's easy to become de dedicated. But if you're willing to commit all of your energy to a particular task, then the hard work and the challenge and the struggle becomes a lot easier to do. And all the lows that I've been through in diving, I've only been able to get through them because of my dedication to the sport. Fifth, uh, sorry, the sixth one is nutrition. Obviously key for sport to be able to fuel yourself well. And it's something that I've spoken about um, under eating, but to give you not only sufficient fuel, but quality fuel gives you an edge that other people might not have if they're lazy with eating or, you know, um, just picking the easy option rather than the right option. So it's definitely something to think about, which is something that's easily forgotten, even in non-athletic walks of life. Number seven is lifestyle. So having a good balance between professional commitments and personal time, because, you know, life is to be enjoyed as well. Like you, Yes, you got to work hard. Yes, you got to do anything, but you got to find that balance as well in, in things outside of whatever it is that you do. And the better the balance, the better your performance will end up being because you'll probably be happier. And then finally, number eight is resilience. So the quote that I put with this is, in order to enjoy the sunshine, storms must be weathered and to emerge unscathed is a success in itself. So it, nothing is easy. If things are easy, then you're not being ambitious enough. And then when it gets difficult, you've got to be resilient and make it through the tough time. And then you'll come out and the sun will be brighter than ever before. And that's the key to improving performance. So yeah, they're my, they're my eight performance principles. And that's what I want to bring through my coaching and mentoring and um, hopefully workshops and online courses and things like that. Wow, what an insightful answer. I think you answered that perfectly. Yeah, so this has been wonderful to have you on. And um, I, I'm just thinking right now about the person that uh, helped to finance your way yeah. over the years. Maybe you want to say a little shout out to him because, you know, it's not easy being a, a, a elite diver. It takes a lot of money to, to do the things that, to travel and to do all the things that you want to do. But there's been somebody in your corner for all these years, and maybe you could give a shout out to him. Yeah, I reached out. I reached out to a man called Levi Roots, who went through Dragons Den in the UK. He's a Jamaican-born businessman, and he launched something called Reggae Sauce, which exploded after his appearance on Dragons Den. He got an investment, and he went on to his business went on to become extremely successful. But it's funny. I was reading an article the other day, and Peter Jones, which was the dragon that invested in him, said he didn't invest in the source, he invested in the person that Levi Roots was. Right. And about four years after Levi had invested in me, so I reached out to him in 2012, literally just sent a message to his website and 
at first he came back with a no and then I was sent him another message in the video and he came back with a yes and went for a meeting and I told him my plan and I told him what I wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve and he decided to back me and support me um, with a certain amount of money each year. But when I asked him what made him invest in me because I was just a 17-year-old kid talking wild about Olympics and everything else I wanted to do for Jamaica, which is unheard of, he said that the way that I spoke about my story and the way that I spoke about my dreams was what did it for him and the passion and the confidence that I spoke with. That's why he invested in me. And that was really cool to hear because obviously that showed that I wanted it for one, but that's innate in me. But without his investment, there's no way that I would have got to the level that I am now. There's no way that I'd still be diving because I had to go to so many competitions internationally to get the experience of what it took. I had to learn all the harsh lessons and his funds were, you know, key to that absolutely fundamental to that so yeah i i will forever be appreciative of his support and of his help and hopefully the way that he was helped by peter jones and then he has been helping other young black people hopefully i can then go on to help people in turn and the cycle can continue yeah that's a wonderful a wonderful way to end, I think, right, Zach? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely, and I have no doubt, you know, that that you will, and that you'll you'll get to that point. We'll all pay it forward, help each other out. You know, it's it's a really good story to hear, and I think it was an amazing interview. I want to thank you so much for for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know that you're in the middle of competing and everything like that, training every day. So we really appreciate the time, and thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Yuna. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show sponsor, KIAS, the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias.ualberta.ca. Our show was co-hosted by Andy Knight and Zach Panda. Our show producer is Katrina Ingram. Technical production by Tom Merklinger. And I'm Nicola Barito. Our theme music is Attitude by Wendy Lewis and Dyson Knight. Graphic design by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to our expert guests. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis people. Find out more about Black Talk at blacktalk.ca.